Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast slightly more afraid of Jurgen Klopp than they were on Saturday. My name is Rupert Meadows and I've written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sports. My co-host Cameron McDonald has spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Rupert. And a strange week of Premier League football where we only had one game with over two goals in it. Uh, and, and to boot, that game was Fulham versus Bournemouth. Um, but maybe it's not <laughs> yeah. that strange. And, and that's also perhaps a, a good place to start, given that Bournemouth have been having quite an interesting uh, sort of new lease of life. They've quietly snuck up to 10th place. Um, and what have I told you that since their 9-0 loss at the hands of Liverpool in game week four, they're the only team to, to have not been beaten? Really? Yeah, that, that's strange. That is, that is a surprising stat. I did not know that. Um, I've seen them poking their heads into the top 10 um, and, and thought, you scamps. Uh, but I didn't realise they were that impressively um, you know, resolute in terms of not losing games. Well, I've, I, it, it goes beyond that because, you know, it's one thing to just get draws and points here and there. And yes, it's only been you know, six games since then. Um, but since they got rid of Scott Parker, um, which, you know, some people thought that might have looked harsh because they, of course, played, you know, City, Arsenal and Liverpool in those first three and, you know, picked up a collective zero goals and conceded 16. But but sacking him and replacing him in the interim with Neil O'Garry, um, since that change, only Manchester City, Arsenal and Spurs have claimed more points than Bournemouth. Um, now, those are probably the three top teams in the league at the moment. Does that make Bournemouth the fourth? It doesn't not make them the fourth. I mean, they, as you say, kind of as you introduced it, they, they have quietly been going about their business. And he, you know, is um, making a really strong case to to keep the job. Um, I think he's, is he, he's the interim manager at the moment, isn't he? He's the interim manager um, as it stands, but I mean, he's, he's making a pretty solid case to be the, the, the permanent manager. I guess the only other thing with Bournemouth at the moment is they've got this sort of new owner who... Um, uh, sort of was there when they when they beat Leicester. It's a guy called Bill Foley. He's an American businessman. Um, he owns a couple of US sports teams. He owns the Vegas Golden Knights in the uh, National Hockey League, and he owns the Vegas Nighthawks, who are an indoor football team. Um, <laughs> so yeah, big, big big on Vegas and Knights. Uh, but he's now right sort on. of bought Bournemouth, and it, it's interesting. Yeah, they, they do seem this newly to life. We've sort of talked about how it's a, it's an inexpensive squad. It's not had a lot of um, reinforcements, unlike for example Nottingham Forest or, or, or Fulham, the other teams that came up. But they've picked up a number of you know pretty solid draws home and away against some solid solid teams, uh, and they've had a couple of key wins on top of that against the likes of Nottingham Forest, which I think you know, that was the three two. Um, did they come back from two nil down? I think they might have, and then Leicester City where they, they, they came well from, done, yeah. from from behind as well. So you know Neil O'Garry's definitely got these players playing a bit better. So there are players who are like Philip Billing who has got three goals, uh, uh, and Dominic Solanke who has sort of come into it a little bit more. I think he's got two goals and three assists. Um, so yeah, this this squad that's sort of pretty unassuming. I think most people would look at it, and I would probably still say looking at that squad just on paper, it's probably the worst in the league, have been not playing like our assumptions and have actually been performing fairly well. I mean, you know, fourth most amount of points after the, the champions, the team that everyone's talking about as sort of the um, the sort of real form team in the league at the moment and, and are actually at the top of the league. And, and Spurs, who have been, you know, n- maybe not playing the most side football, but have been grinding out the results. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think, you know, obviously we talk about the the new manager bounce quite a lot on the podcast, but I feel like it's not to be underestimated. And the way that Scott Parker was dismissed, obviously, yeah, they had those couple of tough games. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of talk around 
Um, the other aspect of things which was kind of in the dressing room and in the boardroom specifically um, because apparently he was quite critical of um, you know not picking up the transfers that he wanted in the window and I think that that kind of thing especially can be really negative in a dressing room because if if your manager's saying fairly vocally that he's not happy with the players that he's got that he he wanted other players then you're just going to look at yourself and go well what am I chopped liver Um, and so I feel like it also makes the case for any new manager to come in, all they had to do is, right, lads, I don't think he was right. We're going to do this together, you and I. You won the champ. You sorry, you did really well in the championship last season. Like, we're going to make a fair crack at this Premier League. And immediately, I feel like everyone's heads turn around. And he's changed the system. He's he's gotten rid of the the three at the back that um, Scott Parker was trying to implement. To, I guess you know fit in with the uh, the Vogue teams in the Premier League. He's just gone straight back to a four four two. And back to basics. And it seems to be working really well. It seems to be working fairly well. I mean, they're not, you know, winning a lot of games. But I think, you know, if you ask most Bournemouth fans when they came up, they'd be happy with a draw most weeks. Uh, And, you know, a draw every week gets you 38 points, which is uh, just too shy of that that magic 40. Uh, And certainly when you think about some of the other teams in the league uh, at the moment, uh, I I feel like you might not even need to break 40 to stay up this season. Um, It's also interesting, especially when we talk about, I mean, we've talked about this with relation to a lot of the sort of bigger clubs, the sort of clubs that have more stat squads that are going to have a lot of players going to the World Cup and how that's going to come into effect. We haven't talked an enormous amount um, about how it's going to affect these sides sort of lower down in the leagues that won't have as many players going to the World Cup and you know you think about Bournemouth you think they've got a very sort of stripped back squad and they haven't got a lot of resources going in there but if the majority of that team is going to be relaxing while the other squads are going to have teams that are playing at the World Cup potentially picking up injuries and and certainly exhausting themselves um, you know it could be really good they've got some really good fixtures heading into the World Cup and, and that well they've got some good fixtures some sort of more solid. Uh, I'll go through them in a second. But yeah, it's if they can sort of stay comfortably mid-table um, into the World Cup, it's, it's a really good position to be in. I mean, it's worth saying that we are still at a point in the league where the table is extremely compact, but that's going to be sort of further and yeah. further reduced over the course of the next four games as we head into the World Cup. They've got Southampton are coming to the Vitality Stadium uh, tomorrow. Uh, this is Tuesday, as we record. Uh, then they've got West Ham away, which, you know, they could potentially pick up a draw. Tottenham uh, at the Vitality Stadium, they almost certainly lose. Leeds again, you know, in and out. Um, then Everton at the Vitality Stadium uh, as well. So that's not a bad run of fixes. It's not a terrible run of fixes. Aside from the Tottenham game, you know, you wouldn't be surprised to see them pick up especially sort of with with this sort of run that they've got in mind, maybe a couple of draws, maybe even a win there. Um, yep. I'm looking at sort of against Southampton, who've been sort of pretty in and out so far this year. So yeah, it could be, it, it, it's it's really going to be interesting. It's never happened before, obviously, but it's going to be interesting to see at the end of the season what the correlation is between team positions going into the World Cup and team positions coming out of the World Cup. And I think the World Cup's going to affect every team differently, but it'll be interesting to see if, you know, Kind of in the same way that when we had the uh, the league restart during the COVID season, how some teams really sort of remember how like West Ham had that crazy run uh, where they looked just really, really, really um, invigorated. And they had like the most goals scored after the yeah, two Manchester yeah, yeah. sides. Or it'll be interesting to see which teams really t- you know take that with both hands. And if indeed it is these sort of quote unquote smaller teams that get a real lease of life and and start to cause some real upsets when everyone else is knackered. Yeah, it'll be interesting because I, I could also see it going in the other way, which is that for a team like Bournemouth who have bounced back really well, they've got good momentum. Yes, they're not winning many, many games, but, you know, that unbeaten run is really encouraging. I wonder if, you know, Gary O'Neill is looking at this upcoming, um, you know, month off 
and thinking, great, an opportunity for my players to like train where no one else is, or if he's looking at it and going, that's that's like a real stumbling block because we're going to lose any momentum that we had. It's almost like you don't want people to take stock and sit back and, and think you want people to be, you know, being motivated and uh, feeling strongly like they just need to keep winning on the weekend. So I, I don't know, I, I could see it going either way for a team like Bournemouth. And as you say, I'm interested to see how it goes, but I could imagine that, that they bounce again quite well once the World Cup's over. And at that point, if they can keep up their momentum a second time, then I think they're looking pretty good for a, a like bottom to mid-table finish. Here's an interesting, slightly related question for you, um, just because you said something there twice and I was thinking about it. Um, and I don't think there's a, necessarily a right answer. I'm just keen to hear your thoughts. Can you call it momentum if it's a series of draws? Like to to me, momentum is like a winning run, but is like, or, or at least sort of like a, a run that is predominantly wins. But the, but the, the the key focus is no losses. Losses is is you know inarguably the thing that stops momentum. So if you get like four draws in a row, is that is that momentum? Maybe because you haven't lost, but then it's also no wins. I mean, what 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 do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, if you, it's all about whether or not you're punching above your weight. That's what momentum is. That's what form is. Um, and if you're in a really good run of form, if you're typically losing those games or almost losing those games and barely scraping draws, and then if you go through a period of getting a lot of draws and scraping wins, that is momentum. That is form. Um, it wouldn't be for other teams, but it's for Bournemouth. I, I guess that's fair. I, it was just interesting because you said, like, if they can keep up this momentum. And my initial thought was, I was like, is that momentum? And then I was like, well, if they've got the most points, you know, other than those three teams we mentioned, then that is definitely a run of form. Of, and, and if they haven't also lost at the same time, then what can you call that but momentum? So, so yeah, I think, I it's, think it's a fair point. I think it absolutely is. I mean, I, it, and it is defined by not losing games. All they have to do is keep not losing. It doesn't matter if they, if they draw another 10 this season. I think if they keep not losing games, um, I feel like Michael Owen, uh, <laughs> they'll stay up. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, I think it's definitely very interesting and, and interesting to see how this sort of new owner uh, affects things, obviously in the first place in, in January, um, but also just, you know, how that, that sort of affects things uh, moving forwards. Yeah. And, you know, as we've seen very recently with Chelsea, uh, the owner can do things other than just invest in the squad. They can also, you know, strip back the entire backroom staff or bring in their own people and all the sort of different things that that, that, that affects as well. Um, so, yeah, and interesting time to be a Bournemouth fan I think yeah. if it, if you're a Bournemouth fan you're probably flying I haven't spoken to any Bournemouth fans uh, since sort of reading about these stats but I, I would assume um, that you're probably in, in, in really good mood right now yeah I mean I think um, similar to as we talked about um, you know with, with Haaland making it potentially easier for all other strikers around him because no one's really looking at them I feel like Bournemouth are getting away with punching above their weight so consistently for the last couple of months just because their goal difference is still so bad that it almost, if you look at it without going into the detail, they've got a minus 12 goal difference. That's the second worst in the league to Nottingham. And you'd probably just think like, oh, they've gotten a couple of lucky scrape wins. But that's not the case. It's massively skewed by the fact that they had that 9-0 loss. And without that, that's a goal difference of minus three, which is very much in keeping with the teams around them. So I feel like... The dates, like the stats, are almost in their favour because the pressure's off them a little bit at the moment. If they keep doing it, the pressure will come off them. But I think it's it's definitely telling that we're that surprised that they're the only team that hasn't lost um, since Gary O'Neill took over. 
Like that hasn't been talked about. Yeah, I, I do also think because it's such a small sample size at the moment. As you mentioned, the nine nil goal difference is such a such a misleader. Yeah, because because as you mentioned, if they if you take away the the nine nil, it's only minus three. Manchester United, who are sitting quite pretty in fifth place, are on minus, minus two. two. So yeah. So, yeah. so so yeah, it, it's interesting. Well, look, that's Bournemouth, uh, and, and and definitely good to sort of check in on them. Um, we haven't really so far this season because they've been doing it quite quite quietly, and I'm, I'm sure they they want to sort of continue doing it quite quietly, so teams don't go well. Watch out for Bournemouth actually, because they could nick a nick a result. Let's talk about the other team in this fixture who are Fulham who are in a similar position uh, at least in terms of the table they're just one place below but they've sort of got there in a very different way they're having a really turbulent season um, where sometimes they kind of look like championship Fulham um, and in other games they look like premiership Fulham and, and here for clarity what I mean by that is some game championship Fulham here is the Fulham that are sort of flying high and going forward with a lot of confidence and uh, you know lots of panache and, and banging goals and uh, premiership Fulham are the Fulham that normally come up and uh, sort of a, a little bit out of their depth it's, it's really um it's really in and out. I would also say that a lot of the time they have been bailed out very heavily by uh, Alexander Mitrovic, who is uh, proving all his doubters wrong, at least so far. Uh, and indeed, Andreas Pereira as well, who's, who's chipping in especially a bit, bit more recently. Um, but, you know, you saw with, with Mitrovic out the last two games before the one they just played, where Mitrovic scored in this game, I think they lost 4-1 and 3-1. Um So I think just even sort of having to deal with him uh, helps blunt other teams. And it, it's just not not really that reliable because if he gets injured that that one's going to be pretty um pretty dodgy but yeah i mean they're they're doing all yeah. right and i think you, you you look at these two sides it was interesting when i was thinking about this game uh not least because it was the only game with you know more than two goals it was you know, had four but these were two teams that i think many were predicting perhaps both of us as well i think we both had bournemouth 20th uh, i'm not sure where we had fulham but we were you know a lot of people I think were predicting I had fulham these- 14th well, there you go. But I think a lot of people were predicting these two sides to uh, as a lock to go down. Um, and it is early doors. They could still yet go down. But they're both in fairly healthy states um, with four games to go until the big break. Yeah, Bournemouth definitely surprised to me. Fulham, Fulham, I hoped, would do well. And I maybe took a bit of a punt on them because if you remember at the beginning of the season, they had like a, a roster of like 14 players <laughs> come the beginning of August. Um, but I, I, yeah, I liked the signs that they were making. And I just gambled on the fact that I thought they'd pick up more players. Um, and as you said there, yeah, Mitrovic has been injured. He missed one game. He went off in the Newcastle game before half time, um, And I think at that point they were already 2-0 down. So it's not purely a when Mitrovic is playing, they challenge. But he is obviously massively important to them. Um, and they'll be very happy that he's back and immediately scoring again, um, having missed one game and a half. Well, let's let's then go from uh, f- certainly, firstly departing the Premier League, and you know, departing a conversation about two of the sides that people considered to be amongst the worst of the bunch, to talk about some of the best of the bunch uh, worldwide. We had the Ballon d'Or um, this week, uh, and the winner was, of course, Kareem Benzema, uh, which was uh, really exciting. Um, I think it's always exciting. I think most people think it's exciting, whether you're sort of a, a little Messi stan or a, or a Cristiano Ronaldo stan, or or you know, the, the sort of more diluted version of those. Everyone sort of. I I think admires one more than the other um but whichever one you admire more i think we can all agree that on at least one occasion both of them have picked up a, a ballon d'or that maybe they didn't quite deserve um certainly Lionel messi's last season uh <laughs> yep. sort of springs to mind um and then there are some some others we could discuss but i don't want to cast my mind back to ancient history so so it's always really nice when you do see a player that is especially a player that's not much maligned but a player that's always sort of been the um the kind of the fifth beetle of that madrid side um kind of be the the the, the 
the front man uh, and, and, and get his plaudits um, for his football. You know, yeah, I mean, whatever, I mean, whatever you might think of him as a person. And I, again, I don't want to get into that because there's, you know, it's all sort of allegations, but certainly the sure, sure, has sure. been very, very impressive. Um, just felt I had to flag that before we sort of went into the Kareem Benzema <laughs> praise train. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think um, what's nice about it is I feel like Benzema this season or this year, sorry, has had a similar time to, I would say, Robert Lewandowski last year. Um, I think everyone agreed that he should have won it. Um, or was that in the, was that the year that they didn't do it? Hang on. I think I, well, well, now, it, was, it was both now years. I'm doubting myself. Should have won the year they didn't do it and probably should have also won because they, they yeah, um, so, buy so, the 2020 Champions League. I think you could make a very, very strong case for him um, deserving it last year, but didn't. You know, it still went to um, one of the one of the two, Messi, Ronaldo. And I think it's really nice that this year it hasn't, as you said. Um, it's a nice break in the pattern. Seems like um, it happens once every couple of years. Everyone goes, ah, maybe we'll have someone else. And then Luka Modric wins it or Karim Benzema wins it here. Um, he definitely deserves it based on the football that he's played. I think everyone agrees that um, across the game. Um, actually, the thing that I was most, I would say, pleased about and surprised about was that Sadio Mane came second. Um, I think that to see him finish three places above Mohamed Salah is... Again, just like, I don't know, uh, representative of the fact that people have actually been watching the football this year. Yeah, 100%. I think, um, you know, de- definitely very indicative that people haven't just gone for, you know, the guy who scored all the flashy goals and who sort of won the golden boot and all that stuff. I well, think it's I guess also they also won, won the, uh, he also won the AFCON, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, in terms of going head-to-head with Mohamed Salah, um, you know, Sadio Mane not only won the AFCON, but they also beat Egypt to qualify for the World Cup. So his Senegal side um, were sort of very, very, very uh, impressive in tandem to his performances uh, for Liverpool. Um, and, and it's sort of, you know, even more sort of poignant that, uh, also maybe not poignant, but, you know, relevant that, um, you know, we're at a time at the moment where Liverpool seem to be struggling after he's left. He's doing, uh, you know, fairly solid. He's got a, a fair amount of goals for, for, for Bayern. Munich so far, even though Bayern Munich aren't, aren't doing amazingly. I think he's scored a few in the Champions League as well. Might, might he's, so. he's, he's, um, he's, he's picked up a couple, but his first one was only a, a few weeks ago. First league goal? Or first Champions so, League yeah. goal? Um, but, um, but, but either way, sort of, he's left this sort of generational Liverpool team and they seem to fall a, a bit apart, which obviously isn't entirely... It's not Sadio Mane leaving, as we discussed a few weeks ago, isn't why Trent and Van Dijk are looking a bit iffy, but it's sort of a bit of a, an underlining thing. Um, so yeah, no, I, I thought it was great. Great, He he, he came second. Um, a great year for, for club and country. So yeah, pretty solid. And KDB rounding up the top three. Yeah, sure thing. And then um, a couple of other players of note um, just thought I'd pick out. Thibaut Courtois, best goalkeeper. Um, Vinicius Junior came eighth. Uh, definitely an up and comer, and I think he's. I think it's really just signified that he is now firmly established as one of the the best players in Europe, and that happened this year. Um, he was a talent until this year. Now he is he is firmly cemented in Europe's elite. Um, Hyungmin Son at eleventh place, and Riyad Mahrez at twelfth. I thought was interesting. Um, Seb Haller at thirteenth. I also found. Um, I didn't hate it. You know, he's, he's obviously had quite a good time since leaving West Ham in 2021. He scored 32 goals in 50 games for Ajax, which is a very solid return, uh, including quite a few in uh, Europe. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it makes for good reading. Yeah, it makes for very good reason. The, the only other thing to mention here is that so Thibaut Courtois made some comments. He came seventh and he was kind of like 
oh, this league, this is like an award. It's impossible for goalkeepers to win. Um, and, you know, it's really set up against their eyes that have made so many crucial saves in Real Madrid winning, you know, all these different awards and, 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 and trophies. And I just don't get recognition. I'm sort of, you know, shoved in under a number of other players, um, which I kind of thought was like, firstly your teammate won it you kind of maybe you're just sort of annoyed that you didn't finish that higher in the list but you're sort of being like it should have been mine by rights it's a bit like you can't oh, be happy kareem on his big day i mean yeah like he played well but I, he's such a moaner tibor corso is such a moaner um never really liked him he obviously uh slept with kevin de bruyne's girlfriend which doesn't doesn't make me love him either um and yeah, he can he can get the bin. As far as I'm honest, um, you're the other one that was doesn't um, like being seventh, then that's fine. Out of interest, like, can can you name off the top of your head the only goalkeeper to have ever won the Ballon d'Or? It's Oliver Kahn, isn't it? I believe it's Lev Yashin. Uh, I guess so because the 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 sort of trophy that they've they've invented for the season is called the the Yashin Award. So that's that's probably true. What what is it? Um, is Oliver Kahn the only one to win a Golden Ball at the World Cup? Then maybe that's what it is. I'm, 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 I'm not as sure. It's all all ancient history, basically, because it was before I was born. Um, <laughs> but the the other interesting one was that um, so obviously it was the the women's Ballon d'Or on the uh, the Ballon d'Or feminine uh, as it's called uh, in its native French uh, on the day, and there was uh, Alexia Patelas uh, won that um, for Barcelona. She's obviously a fantastic player. There was one thing that was. Um, a little bit unsavoury, but sort of turned into a funny moment by Arsenal's uh, Vivian Medema. Um, she was pictured on the um, sort of red carpet outside by Getty Images, and they sort of captioned it with like Vivian Medema on the left with her guest at the awards, uh, and she was uh, she was there with a, a young blonde woman, uh, and the Vivian Medema was like, "So glad I got to bring my guest." That guest was also Arsenal player Beth Mead, who came second in the Ballon d'Or rankings. <laughs> um, yeah, Beth Mead, uh, a very strong player in her own right, um, and someone who had uh, quite a good uh, European, sorry, quite a good international tournament recently. Indeed, um, another another club and country player, sort of zooming up to, to second place, but was uh, reduced, unfortunately, by uh, whoever was writing copy for that <laughs> to guest uh, after her fantastic exploits uh, over the last year. Do you year. know what? I- I wonder, is this like a turning point where uh, instead of it being like, um, you know, described as someone's wife, you're described as as like another woman's date? Is that is that is that progress? I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't think it was a date; it was just guest. It was like, okay, cool. Uh, I'm sure Beth Lee isn't losing any guest. sleep over the uh, over the uh, opinions of a copywriter. She's got uh, she's got a lot going for her. Um, let's sure does. move away from the best of the best to the uh, at least certainly the former two best teams uh, in, in in England uh, Liverpool beating Manchester City 1-0 um, a result that really goes against the run of how the two teams have been performing uh, I mean you know Manchester City have not really been able to crack Anfield at all but this certainly seemed like the season you would expect them to with um a lot of Liverpool's players not doing very well, and Man City supercharged with the addition of a, a Norwegian mutant. Um, but Liverpool managed to get the win and, and played really, really well, which begs the question that we asked a few weeks ago, is this game a derby? Because it certainly seemed to happen in a vacuum. <laughs> it is a derby. I think um, I, I think it's not just about happening in a vacuum. I think, I think it actually happened very much in the narrative of, of how the season's been going for both teams because Liverpool have obviously had a lot a string of disappointing results um and Man City have been almost untouchable at times and 
it's so classic football that as a result of, of those two things, Liverpool specifically set up with a strategy to beat their opposition and City just think we'll roll over them like everyone else. And obviously the team that sets up in a more specifically tactical way ends up winning the game because football is such a tactical sport. If you look at the way Liverpool um, played, the system that they implemented, it's completely different to their usual game. City just tried to play the same old thing and it didn't work. So I, I actually think, you know, I, I we can talk about whether or not it's a derby. I think it is firmly becoming a derby, but I do think it didn't happen outside of the of kind of the realms of the rest of the league. I just think it was a it was a blowback. It was it was. I mean, it was a change in the tide, but it wasn't a vacuum. I, I suppose so. But even, even sort of with the um, you know the, the the change in formation, and, and certainly there was one big change uh, that that really uh, st- stood out to me, and I think most people in, in in this game because it was a a mismatch that we all thought was going to be a mismatch, and it ended up being a mismatch, but in a different way. Um, but certainly, you know, thinking about Haaland, uh, Haaland versus anyone really. I mean, the only team this is the other funny one. The only team that's kept him out so far this season uh, from sort of a goal or assist or anything of that nature was uh, also Bournemouth, bizarrely, uh, albeit in a four nil <laughs> loss. Um, but he sort of managed to not score or, or get an assist or anything uh i think wait, did, did he get an assist against bournemouth but that was the only game he didn't score yeah so he did get an assist there but, but he was completely shut out um against uh mm. against liverpool here um so yeah i mean maybe it's just sort of a sense of rising to the challenge but yeah liverpool looks very very impressive and it's funny because something tells me this isn't a turning point for them um we might you know, smash cut to a couple of weeks' times, and I'm eating my words because they've sort of bounced back. Um, and then certainly they've got a, a game uh, coming up in a couple of days against uh, West Ham with I think no fit senior centre backs. Um, so they'll definitely be able to sort of you know compound their confidence. But yeah, they they just really turned up. I mean, the the one player I wanted to sort of highlight was James Milner, um, who turned out at right back. And I think everyone sort of looked at that and went, mm, Milner's pretty versatile, and he's been known to play left back in a pinch. Uh, I think he maybe played right back way, way back in the day a couple of times for Aston Villa. Um, I think he certainly- started off as, yeah. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, but but that's certainly not a position we've seen a lot or indeed any of him uh, in for a while. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Liverpool fans, but I'm, I'm racking my brains. I really can't think of the last time he, he was... He played left-back for a long time when Klopp first started out at Liverpool, but yeah, not right-back. He, he filled yeah, it he, every now and then. He, yeah, he did left-back, but yeah, I, th- I think it's, you know, the, the positions are... Some players can do both very ably. Not everyone can, and, and certainly you wouldn't have expected someone who is not a natural fullback to begin with to be able to to go from this sort of his secondary position to a sort of related tertiary position but he was exceptional uh, and I think we saw, saw sort of like Milner who's a little bit older he's not the quickest guy in the world coming up against Phil Foden who's in electric form uh, and expected that to be an absolute torching but ultimately he performed really better than everyone thought and whisper it quietly maybe better than Trent would have in the same scenario dot 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 question mark <laughs> well yeah I think um he, he was injured uh, Trent Alexander was injured but tactically I think it makes perfect sense to to pick James Milner over over Trent because as I said they did set up completely differently normally Liverpool play a really high line this time they didn't do that at all they sat back they absorbed pressure they hit on the counter and the other thing that they did quite well is that they didn't leave Milner on his own if you look at the heat maps of of the average positions for the players Joe Gomez is quite far away from Virgil van Dijk and very close by to James Milner and I think that's that was really just to to kind of be prepared to to mop up because obviously he's not Miller's not as quick as as Phil Foden, but um, he is very physical. So if Foden just tries to put around him 
and and run onto it, then Joe Gomez would be there to to kind of pick up the pieces and make sure he didn't get caught out. Um, so I think they set up in a, in a really clever way. And I feel like, I mean, if you look at the comments that Haaland made, I think before he even joined um, Man City, he said that, you know, Virgil van Dijk is the best defender in the world. And I wonder if, you know, he did have a couple of chances and it just didn't quite fall his way. And van Dijk and Joe Gomez did really well in the physical aerial battle. And I wonder if for for a player who's been scoring so freely to have been shut out and to not really feel like the game's going your way, the longer it stayed at nil-nil, I feel like Man City just lost the 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 mental battle. I think Haaland might have lost this mental battle um, because he's looked so imperious until now. And this time, it just felt like it really wasn't his day. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that's a, that's a great assessment of it. And, and certainly interesting now to see what this does uh, for Haaland. I saw quite a funny tweet that was like, oh, this is uh, this result is uh, you know great for Liverpool, but it's also great for football fans because it's implanted the seed in Pep Guardiola's mind that Haaland isn't up to the challenge in big games. Uh, and now in about six months, we'll see uh, you know, <laughs> Joao Cancelo starting up front in the Champions League final. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, looking forward to it. I mean, what? I mean, it, it's a bit of a Xerxes moment, isn't it? Like the god has bled. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And- you can't keep. Him. I mean, they, you know, Bournemouth kept him out, sort of, at the expense of four goals. But yeah, they, they, they've completely kept uh, Haaland and City out in, in this game, Liverpool. So, so, well, so, so, well I would it, say it, it, Bournemouth didn't keep him out because, in in as you said there, they sacrificed everything to keep him out and and lost it all. So mm. this is the first time that he has been stopped and not at the expense of, of conceding several goals. Um, and I'm sure, as we were talking about at the beginning of the season, um, like any new system, like any new player, as soon as one team figures out how to, how to deal with them, we'll see everyone else trying the same thing. And I think that he, he will slow down. He's obviously not going to stop because Man City are always so imperious and he is so dominant, but he, he will score fewer, I, I estimate. Well, well, that that is all certainly true. Sort of about you know once people figure it out, I'm gonna slightly, I'm gonna do, do a sort of move into our use of trivia now because uh, I, I want to pick up on that point in relation to the next game we're going to talk about and, and the next team we're going to talk about. But I don't want to sort of segue straight in without having a quick break for users trivia. Um, so I'll start off and I've got one for you this week that is uh, quite relevant, relevant to what we've been talking about and relevant to this week in football, uh, because of course, it's about the Ballon d'Or. Um, and not just the Ballon d'Or, but the Ballon d'Or in relation to Everton Football Club. Now, you may remember mm. that I spun a yarn a, a few uh, weeks ago about how Everton have been sort of the longest reigning champions in England on account of uh, being the champions in both 1914 and 1939 uh, uh, when the um, when the league was suspended. I'm, I'm not sure if it was exactly whatever years the league was suspended for the for the two world wars. They were the champions and thus sort of had to wait throughout the periods of both those wars to be dethroned. Um, but they also mm. have some, something else uh, quite interesting about the the years they've actually won the league and been champions of England. Uh, and that is that the last 14 Ballon d'Or winners were born in years when Everton were champions of England. 14 Ballon d'Or winners. Indeed. Now, I must I must <laughs> confess immediately that I have fudged the numbers slightly here. Uh, for indeed, <laughs> it is not 14 different people, rather the winners of the last 14 Ballon d'Ors. Uh, because, of course, Benzema and Messi were born in 1987 uh, and Modric and Cristiano Ronaldo were born in 1985, both years that Everton were champions of England. <laughs> Still, still, that's uh wow. That is a very cool stat. Did you did you find that yourself, or did you did you spot that somewhere? Uh, I was looking through the the list of winners because I was trying to figure out. Um, 
I, I'd, I'd forgotten to, to be to be completely honest with you when the last time either of them hadn't won at Bar Cruz, uh, and it was in two thousand and seven with Kaka. Um, a new Kaka had won it last. But I can remember what, what year. Uh, and he, yeah, little little, little, little tid before he was born in nineteen eighty two, uh, in a year which Everton did not <laughs> win. Uh, but I'm not sure who did because uh, again, so Liverpool dear listener, um, it was before my time. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore might as well not have happened um, that is <laughs> a, that? That I, a, I can't immediately summon it <laughs> um, that is a very cool stat uh, Everton fans if you're listening that's that's definitely one for the pub um, I have also got one that I think is, is pub worthy um, it touches on a couple of things that we've talked about so far um, this show which is um, goalkeepers and players performing under the radar uh, you might have noticed that Kepa Aretha Balaga is having quietly quite a good season under um, Tuchel and then Potter. He's been intermittently starting ahead of Edouard Mendy. And um, indeed, he is um, the goalkeeper who has um, his, his, his saves have saved, according to the stats, the most amount of goals of any goalkeeper in the entire Premier League at 3.2. Um, compared to Allison 2.7, Pickford 2.7, and the rest of the pack. Well, there you go. I mean, he made a particularly tremendous, uh, yeah, triple save uh, yeah, over, over the weekend, and has, has been looking good. I've certainly been, uh, and I, I keep referencing that. I feel, I feel like I'm referencing it a lot this season, and it's, it's, it's just because I'm doing quite well for a, for a change for the first time in my damn life. But he's been someone I've been eyeing up for my fantasy football team, and only four point <laughs> four million. Uh, and if he is indeed Chelsea's first choice, he might be making his way over to do the Harlan shake any moment now. So, either way, someone has to replace Danny Ward. Uh, so so yeah no I think he's uh he's he's sort of done very well it's it's interesting isn't it because it's the um I mean it's sort of partly to do with uh, Mendy's injury but it's it's the situation you always sort of dream of when a new manager comes in isn't it as a it's a second choice goalkeeper I imagine he must always get most excited because he's like I never get a chance to try but maybe this guy's gonna shake it up uh, and it's fallen that way for Kepa there you go um yeah just like uh oh God, who's the Kalor Navas for Real Madrid when uh, Mourinho, Mourinho came in came and decided and- that. Uh, Iker Casillas wasn't good enough. Um, a, a, a prescient uh, <laughs> prediction from uh, from Jose Mourinho. He said gay rights, perhaps. <laughs> Maybe that was what it was all about. Well, well, we we certainly can't speculate uh, either here or there, uh, and for legal reasons, just a mere yoke there. One of those yokes you may have heard all about. Let's talk next. <laughs> you, about... you are you are correct, by the way, about um, Oliver Kahn. I, I had a little a little quick quick look up. Um, in 2002, he was the only goalkeeper in the tournament's history to win the Golden Ball. Ah, there you go. I knew there was some sort of uh, spherical gold in uh, in his past. Um, just the wrong orb. Um, let's talk next about the team at the top of the table. A couple of things to dig into here as Arsenal beat Leeds at 1-0 at Ellen Road. Um, the first thing I want to sort of seize on is what you were talking about there, um, sort of Manchester City, uh, knowing how to sort of stop Haaland, making a god bleed. Uh, Arsenal would have been playing Manchester City tomorrow, um, but as a result of the Queen passing and games being rescheduled, Arsenal's PSV fixture in the Europa League is being played on Thursday, so they couldn't obviously play on Wednesday and Thursday, so that has been delayed until... I think after the World Cup. It hasn't been announced when it's going to be played yet, um, and I assume at this point that means it's going to be after the World Cup, which is very interesting from a, a, a sort of you know, big step back league perspective, because it means that there's not going to be a top-of-the-table clash between these two sides until the second half of the season, and then there are going to be two. Um, 
but also because it gives certainly you know Arsenal are a young developing team uh, it gives them more time to sort of prepare for the likes of mm-hmm. Erling Haaland and sort of watch more and more teams adapt him on the other hand it gives someone like Erling Haaland more time to as we've already discussed practice and get used to the, the climate <laughs> of the Premier Carson. League and, and, and lash <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of goals past uh, um, uh, I can only imagine miserable Scott Carson uh, at that point um, but it'll be interesting to see how, how that affects the two and, and certainly you know if they've learned a lot less from Liverpool I think we talked a lot last week about how their win against Liverpool may have done something for the mentality of this young squad and sort of gone, well, actually, you know what? We've never beaten these sort of big, big boys, but we can do it. And now sort of the following week, they've gone, well, we've beaten those guys and they can beat the big, big boys. Does that mean that by proxy, we can beat the big, big boys? Now, I don't know if that's how it's going to have worked uh, in the dressing room, um, but, you know, it certainly could have and it certainly could have a, a big effect. Those are big, grandiose terms of viewing Arsenal in. They did not play in a big and grandiose fashion in this game, I will say. It's probably the worst they've looked all season. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I suppose, um, and we'll talk about the game itself, but just, just very broadly, how would you interpret this result for Arsenal? Are they running out of steam and sort of the wheels are coming off and they try to make it to the break? Or is this one of those sort of cliched champion performances where you go, well, if you stay bad, you play badly, but you still win, um, that's the mark of a, of a championship team? It's tricky because I feel like what's what's not really said as much about that is that, you know, it's, it's if they play badly, but still manage to grind out a result. And I think Arsenal did grind out a result, but I think there was also a healthy amount of luck. I think they left the game wide open for Leeds right until the very end. They made defensive errors. Um, they conceded a penalty. I don't see it as like a not quite on their day, but managed to still perform adequately enough to get the win. I think it was that they were just very, I would say fortunate. I, I think most of the big decisions were correct. Um, I'm, I'm not going to have a go. I actually think VAR did quite a good job in this game, dare I say it. Um, but... I would lean on. I would lean towards them being lucky than them being, you know, this being indicative of of a title challenge or or like the mark of champions. Um, but if they can keep doing it, then I will happily eat as many hats as you'd like. I, 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 well, for what it's worth, I think they were absolutely really lucky. Um, but but at the same time, in the same breath, I think that. Um you know, luck is also you. There's no team that you look at that's won the league that hasn't had some element of luck. And I think a lot of Arsenal's Arsenal fans sure. will sort of gripe and moan that they've often got sort of the the bad rub of uh, VAR and referee decisions. But they've had a a couple of somewhat favourable ones this season, and sometimes that's just what you need. You need sort of you know. I I think um I, I go to football games with my with my dad a lot of the time, and my dad has a sort of like long held theory that uh, which which you know may be true that he sort of like referees you know whether consciously or not sort of admire good teams and apply some sort of bias to them because they're like oh you know this team plays good football and so I want to see them win um and so you know the teams that play the good football then naturally get the best and that's sort of his explanation for teams like you know Fergie's Manchester United for example getting so many decisions um perhaps there's some truth in that perhaps not um but it certainly is true that if you get a lot of good decisions from the referee that go your way you will win a lot of games um but looking at the game itself uh, a really interesting start because kickoff was delayed by 40 minutes in the game uh, due to communication issues for the referees uh, meaning they couldn't get in touch with their colleagues at Stotley Park who are of course overseeing VAR um, and as you mentioned that turned out to be crucial to the outcome of the game it really did and um, there are a couple of, of big moments 
um, throughout this game. I think the the red card being overturned, um, the goal being disallowed. Um, although, actually, sorry, VAR didn't overturn a goal being disallowed. It just confirmed what the referee uh, believed already. But yeah, I think um, it got every single one of those correct. It, it shouldn't have been a red card. In, in my opinion, I could see them being given, to be honest with you. He did lash out and he did hit Patrick Bamford's arm. But in my opinion, it was not violent enough to warrant a red card at the very end of the game. Um, and then I think, I think broadly, maybe where Arsenal got quite lucky is that I think the the push from Bamford on was it Gabriel I believe um, yeah, before yeah. he scored his goal I think that it was it was close enough that VAR would probably just rule to keep whatever decision the referee made so I guess Arsenal were were fortunate that the referee saw it and decided to award a free kick and then that that decision was kind of confirmed um, because I could see it. If, if the referee hadn't given it and given the goal, I could see that being upheld as well. Um, but yeah, I think um, well done, VAR. Well well done, VAR, for the most part. I mean, there was one tiny thing where um, for Leeds' penalty um, there, what, which was, you know, it hit Saliba's arm and then that part was a stonewall penalty. But there was like a player who was offside in the build-up who I think delivered the cross that then ended up being the handball. Um, and so it was like, have you missed that? It ultimately ended up not mattering. And I think that if you're uh, even the most sort of like, you know, um, beleaguered Arsenal fan who thinks that everything's against them has to say they got more good decisions than bad. But I think that was maybe the sole sort of mistake that went against Arsenal Arsenal VAR wise I thought personally for my money the Bamford goal should have stood I, I think you're completely within your rights as a, a player to use your body to make space. Um, I don't think he was that bad. Like, what, what's he supposed to do if Gabriel's encroaching on him? He's. I, I think that's absolutely fair enough to sort of use your body well, and give him a pushback. I, I agree, but I don't think Gabriel was encroaching. And I think that the reason why it went against him was because he got quite unlucky and he pushed Gabriel as he jumped off the ground. So I think the push was while Gabriel was in the ground and there wasn't enough of a challenge for, for for like the ball at that point so that's that's why to me it was a foul but I, I could see them given and I could see them not being given but perhaps I mean it was it was a classic one of those that I, I looked at that and I went you know now, now that Bielsa's gone I have no special love for Leeds um, but if it was a, if, if that was you know a goal disallowed for my team I would be absolutely incensed uh, and that's sort of my uh, <laughs> oh yeah absolutely you, I think you, everyone, you my metric of how I look at those things <laughs> yeah but you know I think it's it's really a I would be incensed either way as a football fan if that's given against me I'm furious and, and if do you know what I mean like if, if someone scores that against me I'm furious if um, if it gets called up against me I'd be furious so I think that's a, that's on the fence one and, and my emotions would dictate whether or not I think it was right yeah yeah fair enough well look Arsenal now um, you know Four that's points nine clear. wins out of ten that's their that's their best start uh, to a league, I believe, ever. Um, so certainly, you know, very, wow. very impressive start. Um, and they have now played, you know, a number of, of pretty solid teams. Leeds also before this this game had not been beaten at home this season. So despite the fact that they're not so hot, I think they're sort of fifteenth or sixteenth. Um, they have been pretty tricky to to you know knock away at home and, and Arsenal managed that. Yeah, 
pretty good. Uh, only one loss. Uh, and again, as we talk about, this sort of World Cup's around the corner. They're not mm-hmm. playing um, this week. Uh, so a lot of teams will catch up with a game in hand and some will then go one game ahead. But as it stands, Arsenal are four points clear as a result of the uh, the aforementioned game between Liverpool and Manchester City. A good place to be. Um, certainly they're longer than we thought they would be. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess they can just they can just keep rolling on and they've got a couple of uh, pretty nice fixtures coming up. Um, so yeah, I think uh, they're, they're, they're doing all right. Let's, looking at Leeds, um, Leeds, as I mentioned there, have been pretty resolute at home, but not the most uh, influential away. But huge boost for them to see Patrick Bamford come back into the side. I think he's only started three games this season. Um, so for him to come on, albeit at half time. Is a big, big, big boost for them. And, um, you know, even with the 45 minutes, on another day, if that goal had been allowed to stand and he hadn't dragged his penalty wide and that last one had been given as a penalty, he could have had a hat-trick. And that's all, you know, if, ifs and buts were candy and nuts, etc., etc. But, you know, it, it, it could have happened. Um, and so the fact that he's even sort of getting in the positions to make those things happen, even if they're then overturned, uh, is, is definitely very encouraging for a lead side who... Um, you know, need need all the players they can get. What what I will say also, Lewis Sinistera looks like a very good player. They haven't missed Rafinha as much as I thought they would. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, Rafinha, I thought they were really going to struggle with him. Well, not massively, but you know, the the combination of of him and Calvin Phillips, I thought was going to be was going to be difficult. But they've they've been a little bit more erratic, and that's saying something, uh, I would say. Um, and I think that in my mind, they're still in contention for going down. I mean, they're only one point off the relegation zone, so they're obviously in contention. Um, and they've got a long season ahead of them, but things aren't looking... They're not, you know, they're not a DEFCON anything yet. Um, and yeah, it'd be great to have Bamford starting again. He's been coming off the bench and not really been able to impact games in the way he would have liked. Um, I'm thinking games like, uh, you know, the the 1-1 draw against Everton... Um, the nil-nil draw against Aston Villa, the one-nil loss against Brighton, um, and yeah, with him starting games up top, um, they they do just look like, and they will look like a, a different outfit. Yeah, yeah, I, I think they will, and I think it's you know it's not really a great start, but he's such a big, such a big change to them. Uh, let's look next at uh, Chelsea scoring two uh, away at Villa Park. Um, Steven Gerrard. Is 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 the, uh, the the axe looming? Is the sword of Damocles hovering above his head? Um, and and conversely, uh, Potter, what's going on? The, the team it's always so weird. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean the team's so weird? Just like you just, the... you just never know who to expect. And then he made like that very weird sub at half time to bring Kukurea off and Koulibaly on. And I, I, what's happening? I don't understand. You didn't do this at Brighton. Well, he was tactically flexible at Brighton. And he now just has a much bigger, more tactically versatile squad. So, in some <laughs> senses, <laughs> in some senses, like, it makes sense. I don't know. I, I, I get I, it. I, I, I'm very confused by by some of his movements, but hey, it, it seems to be doing all right so far. And Mason Mount uh, seems to have found his shooting boots. He he, he got a, an absolutely. Uh, I think both of his goals were, were fantastic. Uh, one was you know obviously completely individual, and one was <laughs> Tyrone Mings just having a real Tyrone Mings of a of a moment. Yeah, a bit of a stinker, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, question for you. Um, should the goalkeeper have saved that free kick? Yeah, probably. Um, Martinez kind of like just jumps up in the air and sort of the right, probably just saves it. But then I guess the wall's obscuring him a little bit. It's a little bit tricky. Um, well, it it well, kind of looks well like he leaves kick. it. He doesn't He doesn't put his arms up. 
Yeah, I th- he could have done better. But I think it's a well hit free kick. I wouldn't wouldn't take much away from from Mason Mount. Yeah, all right, all right, all right. Um, but yeah, no, me Mason Mount is. Um, I think he's the the second youngest Chelsea player ever to hit twenty five Premier League goals after Eden Hazard. So, um, you know, he's had he's had ups and downs in the last couple of years. Looks like he's back on the up. And as an England fan, that's great news. Yeah, Chelsea uh, are sort of the <laughs> the source of a lot of England's hope now um, with sort of this this crisis. I mean, even though Reese James is, is, is now injured, but Mason Mount and, and Chilwell are going to be. Uh, although will will Chilwell play? Surely Gareth Southgate plays Chilwell over over Luke. It's fine. Uh, I so. think. Um, I think does, does Milner come instead of Trent? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. God, that'd be so funny if James Milner won the World Cup in England at age thirty six. I actually would freaking love it. I love James Milner so much. What a man he is. I just love like, it's some, it's one of the things I look forward to every year. Like that little piece of news that's like, and James Milner wins the bleep test again for Liverpool in preseason. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, another strange game this weekend uh, was Manchester United nil, Newcastle United nil at Old Trafford. Um, not least because of that weird, did you see the sort of weird free kick incident with Ronaldo? Um you know, where there's a free kick given and the referee yeah. blows his whistle. So, like, a defender gets it, pass it back to the keeper, and the referee sort of blows his whistle as the ball is rolling to the keeper, I believe. I haven't slowed it down frame by frame and looked at the referee's lips, but um, it seems like it was clear that the free kick hadn't been sort of taken. And then, uh, although all, the, all the United fans are absolutely insistent it did, and then Ronaldo sort of, like, runs up, nabs the ball from the keeper and just fires into an empty net. And, like, the reason I'm so sure it wasn't in play was because, like, not... Like a few of the United players around with him, but like Eric Ten Hag was like, Eric Ten Hag was like, "What are you doing?" And everyone else on the pitch was like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> and even some of the fans were like, "What are you doing?" Yeah, I think uh, it was it, it had a, the the air of a desperate man about it, didn't it? Um, someone it, it really who was. was very eager to to get a goal for his team, which I think we can all respect, um, but didn't quite come off for him this time. Um, I mean, I remember growing up and um, do you remember watching Ronaldinho try to nick the ball off a goalkeeper and feeling really aggrieved that they didn't let him because um, apparently when, when the goalie is taking like a kick from his hands, even if he drops it onto his foot, he's still kind of in possession of the ball. Um, sure. And it, it almost felt a little bit like that. It's like, uh, I guess a, a top player trying to be a bit cheeky, not getting away with it. Yeah, I, I, it was it was quite funny. I mean, I, I watched that. And I was like, maybe you get away with that for Real Madrid and and the referees in Spain go, yeah, <laughs> suck on that Rio Vallecano, Elche CF. Like, you, we we don't care. We only want the the sort of Kings team to do it. But it doesn't seem to work like that in, in the Premier League. Uh, certainly these the days, Manchester United, which is which is strange because maybe this does work for Ferguson Manchester United. It's a good question. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, there are definitely some fans in English football that would tell you that it probably would have done. Um, but not this time. Um, and- Newcastle, of course, with this result now up to sixth. We were talking uh, last week about whether top six uh, is an achievable uh, result for them. Um, and uh, they're sort of hovering in that area at the moment. The top six is, of course, the sort of five of the big six, uh, less Liverpool uh, and Newcastle, who sort of squirmed in there. And some are sort of making the joke that Newcastle, or you know, perhaps it's not even fully a joke, but some are sort of suggesting that maybe it'll be Liverpool who makes way uh, at the end of their cycle for the newly rich and newly emboldened uh, you know, Newcastle side. <laughs> I'm not sure we're there yet, but that's, um, that's it'll be a- yeah, it's still a front. It's a still a front runner take. That's still a brave take. Um, but uh, Newcastle looked great, and I think um, you know their defensive solidity was there for everyone to see. Uh, Sven Botman and Dan Byrne 
look like they've they've formed a really good partnership already. And Sven Botman, if he keeps this up, has got to be one of the signings of the season because for only what like thirty two million, I think he's completely transformed their defence. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. He he really has and. The, yeah, I mean, we talked about it a little bit last last episode, so I'm not going to go into it too much. But a, a really nice looking outfit at the moment, uh, with lots of uh, lots of very interesting little players um, sort of doing their thing. Interesting to see where it develops. I, I did. Um, did you see? And again, careful where I tread here. But did you see? And you'll get where I'm going with this. That Eddie Howe came out to talk about Jurgen Klopp berating the referees um in the manchester city liverpool manchester city game and he was like oh i'm paraphrasing but he said words to the effect of like oh i'm not really sure that that's how someone should comport themselves in front of like millions of impressionable people i just can't get on board with the morality of it and everyone was like it was one of those moments where i was like does he know <laughs> i thought to be the department was like if i were how i would simply not talk about the morality of other coaches <laughs> yeah that's uh that's one of those ones that you may be thinking your head and then you get frustrated that you can't make that point uh because you you probably can't make that point yeah yeah it was um a, a, a very a very interesting start for him to take for him to sort of come out and say that um, especially against like if i think about all the managers in uh you know the premier league that would be most likely to turn around and be like oh yeah mate well what about xyz you think Klopp would be pretty high on that list if not at the top <laughs> yeah it's a good it's a good point um but i guess you know it's classic we've seen it uh it's a it's a strategy as old as the time itself um a good defense is a good offense and that seems like that's uh, Eddie Howe's take on Newcastle being a morally questionable club. Yeah, I mean, well, look, we were talking about goal difference earlier with relation to uh, Bournemouth. Newcastle have the fifth best goal difference in the league, uh, other than <laughs> Liverpool, who, again, if you take away that, you know, 9 0, and I, you know, not take away, but even if you say that's, you know, 2 0 or 3 or 4 0, they're not on plus 9, they're on plus whatever goals you give them. Um, and then the only teams who have got a better goal difference are Tottenham, Arsenal, and Manchester City, those, those three teams, again, who are sort of, you know, top three positions and, and look like the top three teams in the league as well. So getting the goals not conceding that many, um, looking very solid. They sure are, yeah. And it's interesting to know, actually, Chelsea have been sneaking back up the table quite quietly. They've got a game in hand on Man City and Tottenham, and if they win it, they'll only be one point behind City in second. It's quite interesting, yeah, it's quite interesting to see um, how the, not only the postponement of the games uh, that everyone had, but also the some teams had their games postponed. Because Chelsea are another one. Like Arsenal City is one that's been postponed. But also, like quite interestingly, Chelsea versus Liverpool. And they're sort of both teams that are sort of trending in directions. Uh, I suppose yeah. any team is always trending in a direction, even if that direction is just straightforward. Um, you, can, but, you can stay the same. Yeah, yeah I, I suppose you can stay the same. But, you know, Chelsea, new life under a new manager, sort of still figuring things out. Liverpool looked like they were trending downwards. And I, if I had to sort of look into my crystal ball, are probably still trending downwards, but recently had this result. And Salah could be getting his confidence back and all this stuff. So it's interesting to see... I, I feel like if they had played each other when they would have, Chelsea would have won. Maybe. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Is is that true if they I now think play it would have been a really, Cup? really shit draw. Maybe. <laughs> and, and maybe it still will be. But but again, just, just another interesting thing that, you know, it, it, it's always interesting when you have sort of isolated instances of this, whether it's like, like, for example, the, um, you know, 
in, in a typical season, something like that Leeds Arsenal game will happen, and the result will happen, and then at the back end of the season, if either of them, you know, if Leeds have gone down, or if Arsenal have finished top four, or if they've won the league, people will sort of look back at that game and go, well, you know, that game happened, and such and such and such and such. Um, but like every team's been touched by it this season, which is quite interesting, in much the same way that sort of every team was touched by the sort of coronavirus break and, and all that stuff. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to sure, see. Sure. And, and, and then sort of, so you already have that in the season. And then on top of that, you also have this massive World Cup break in the middle of the season. So it's a season really unlike no other. Um, and I, for one, am already excited for the end of the season to see how it really pans out and if we see some some just bizarre, um, you know, turnouts as a result of it. Yeah, hey, it's, it's going to be a roll of the dice. And I guess, you know, it, it's not that football gets samey because I think it changes so much year on year, but I don't mind new things. New things can be interesting. I'm excited to see how it affects it, as you said. Um, and I do just want to see whether or not Haaland comes back absolutely screaming at the top of his lungs or if he's lost all sense of, of where the goal is. Yeah, I, I I just don't... I don't know which one... Because you can make an argument for both, right? On the one hand, you can be like the players that come back from the World Cup that have played a lot of matches. It, in a sense, it's kind of like them playing... Not a full season, but they're playing like you know, a se- you know, three quarters of a season or something and then coming back to play the second half of the season. Um, and, you know, World Cup also there's, you know, you're travelling to a different place, you're not sort of, you haven't got your, your creature comforts at home, you're playing with a different sort of team, you're playing with a different manager, there's all sorts of sure, sure. little things that independently top sports professionals might be fine with, but cumulatively could make a huge difference to their mental state and their physical state. Um, mm-hmm. And, you yeah. know, I, I, I mean, I say little things that maybe, um, you know, athletes could deal with, but I mean, these athletes these days are trained like they're like microchips uh, if a tiny grain of sand gets in that's not in their usual routine it can it can throw the whole thing out of kilter uh, and you know they are being thrown wow. quite literally into a desert so um, it's uh, what, what an analogy wow uh, where did that come from that was amazing I, I, I you know what I didn't even plan it when I started it you but, pulled uh, it pulled it out pulled it out of the bag <laughs> well played but, Cameron but, well but, I think that's um that's as good a place to end things as any yeah, yeah, I think so. Rupert, great to talk to you as always. Cam, thank you very much. And thank you to everyone at home for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshel. 